0: RA Exchange. Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. This is the first exchange of 2024, and I have a little bit of a head cold, as you can hear, but thank you for joining me anyways. Today, I'm happy to introduce Christelle Oyiri to the show, the artist otherwise known as Crystal Mess. Oyiri is French and has origins in the Ivory Coast and Guadalupe. A resident of NTS Radio, she's also had released some pan and created original productions for films and fashion brands, including O Lingerie. Her unique production style combines melodic techno, afro trance, abrasive dancehall, and what she calls, quote unquote, synthetic music. In this exchange, recorded live at Turin's C2C Festival, she talks to Whitney Way about how she melds her unique influences into her productions and mixes. She's a big fan of French and Southern rap, she says, and the foundations of her music are a combination of the music she first heard at Notting Hill Carnival when she was four years old and the American hip hop artist DJ Screw. It took her a long time to come to music for the dance floor, she says, because she didn't see herself reflected in the mainstream electronic music being disseminated when she was a child in France. As a result, she couldn't identify with the scene, and she didn't start seriously pursuing her current craft until about ten years ago.
1: In France, like electronic music was very bourgeois, like Daft Punk and them, like their parents, like they were working for village people for like huge, like <laughs> major record labels. I thought that they were underground, and then I was like, Nah, y'all are just rich kids, which is okay. It's a vibe sometimes, but it's just like, I guess I was looking for some kind of representation before I could say to myself, this is what I want to do. When you don't see yourself, you cannot tell yourself, this is what I want to do.
0: Now, Crystal Mess is a full-time artist. She discusses finally finding her sound as a musician amidst the noise, collaborating with people she admires, keeping her autonomy and well-being in check as an artist, and much, much more. Thanks so much for tuning in. Without further ado, here is the one and only Crystal Mess. My name is Whitney Way,
2: and I am so pleased to be sitting here with Christelle because I've been a fan for so long. I've listened to all your mixes. I think that you're a brilliant artist. And so we're finally sitting down, clearing the space in order to talk to you and talk about all the crazy things that have happened this year for you. I'm gonna do a little introduction just in case you guys aren't aware. So, born in 1992 in the Paris region, Christelle O'Yeary is a French producer. DJ under the pseudonym Crystal Mess, writer and artist of Ivorian, Guadalupian origin. Combining film, music, performance, and sculpture, her radically interdisciplinary work deals with the themes of colonial alienation and alternative temporalities. She is currently a resident of NTS Radio and has released her music on Pan, live-scored compositions for brands such as Autolinger and Telfar. And also recently displayed her work at Glasgow Tramway, Serpentine Pavilion, Lafayette Anticipations, a show that I personally saw and it was incredible, and the shop at Sadie Cole's headquarters. Please give a round of applause for Christelle. Okay, so let's start with the first couple questions, which delve into your musical background and your upbringing. So I read an interview recently when you said, when I was four, my parents took me to the Notting Hill Carnival, even though they couldn't speak English and still can't. It kind of changed my life forever. Let's talk about what that was like for you as a four-year-old and why did it change your life?
1: In France and particularly in Paris, like the way space is like is completely different from the UK for instance like having a garden being able to like invite people over and have house parties is something that you can do in France with much more difficulties than in the UK and I felt like what I loved about going to the Notting Hill Carnival was obviously the carnival itself, but also all the festivities around the carnival. And I still have pictures from it and stuff. Like seeing people have their own space in their home and being able to like throw like little rave in house was always a thing. And I also feel like it was more transgenerational because I'm noting carnival, like you also have a carnival for children. Which is also where I went with my parents. Obviously, like the children are not like singled out from like the carnival and I wouldn't say the nightlife because it's not during the night, but like from from celebration and music culture and like I felt really good about that, like because I was included and you know like in France the separation between generations is much more like of a thing so it's like whenever it's time for the grown-ups to dance like the little kids have to like you know go and sleep and when I was like in the UK it wasn't the case at all like kids could have their little fun next to the grown-ups staying there for like weeks with my parents and like hearing like loads of also seeing like huge sound system like I have a picture like of like a dancer next to a a huge like speaker and I had never seen that in my life like my dad asked him like what that was because like at that time we only had like you know like Walkman or like just home system but I had never seen something that big and never heard music like as loud as I heard there. I kept like really like vivid memories of that time for sure like that also talked about it with my cousin, because my cousin at the time was much older. So she has like a more vivid like memory of it. And even though it was a kid carnival, they were still blasting the jungle, blasting, even if if it was for the kids and stuff. Like, so I guess like it was just printed at the back of my head. Going back a little bit about what you said
2: in the beginning of your answer, what was it like to grow up in southern Paris? and that kind of musical education that you had, at what point did you realize that music was going to be what you wanted to pursue?
1: I guess music was always in my household. Even though my parents are not musicians, like in West African culture, like every week there's a wedding, there's a DJ, like it sounds really cliche, but that's really how it is. I was always around music, but I feel like I was never like a trained musician. I only played like drums when I was like in high school because I had a little band. I was never like into like learning how to write music and stuff because all the kids that were learning how to write music seemed really depressed. Like all my friends that were like, that had like their parents putting them into like these kind of lessons and stuff. Like every time I would talk to them and be like, hey, you like the piano lessons? It's like they almost want to burst into tears. I was like, <laughs> no, that's not. I always love music, but the, the quote unquote like discipline and classicalism like that came with like writing music and going to music school was not my thing. I knew that's, that was not the way I wanted to approach music in high school. A shift started to happen because that's when I started to really listen. Like junior high, I was a bit too like immature to really think about what it is that I wanted to do in life. I was just like vibing and watching anime. You know, I was just vibing and listening to music. But I felt like in in high school, it started to shift because I realized that like all the music that I was drawn to was really like synthetic music and like really like hardcore had like a very like strong element like I was obviously listening to a little bit of rock and stuff but even when I was listening to rock I was drawn to like less drawn to the acoustic part of like rock I was really like drawn to everything that could like sound big sound synthetic I was like I realized that what I liked the most was like I was drawn more to instrumentals. So when I was in high school, it was the peak of DJ culture also in France. Ooh, baby, you couldn't go nowhere. (laughs) You couldn't go nowhere without Sebastian, Justice. Like It was really insanely, insanely big. Contrary to a lot of French music, this kind of music was managing to export itself outside of the country. Because French is a particular language, so French singing and stuff, like it can only go so far. but like electronic music was managing to like create bridges outside of France. And that's when I started going out. I was not of age, but I was like, I need to go wherever they are, most particularly DJ Mady, because DJ Medi came from the type of neighborhood that I grew up in, which is like low-income neighborhood or whatever. like. And at the same time, he produced one of the biggest albums of French rap, which is called Les Princes de la Ville, that you cannot find on streaming services because of Simple Clearance. When he started producing for them, it was like in the late 90s. And it was like a lot of bangers. Like all the kids was listening to that. I was listening to that with all my friends. And then, this album was released in 1999, so I was like seven or six or something. And then he made kind of like this transition from rap to electronic music from, I would say, 2004 to like his death, basically. And I guess like, his trajectory has always inspired me because in France, like electronic music was very bourgeois. Like Daft Punk and them, like their parents, like they were working for Village People for like huge, like <laughs> major record labels. So it's also not surprising that they could have a mask for like their whole career and make like that much money and like like just take whatever sample and it, like it's cool. I thought that they were underground, and then I was like, no, nah, y'all are just rich kids, which is okay because it's a vibe sometimes, but it's just like... I guess I was looking for some kind of representation before I could say to myself, this is what I want to do. When you don't see yourself, you cannot tell yourself, this is what I want to do. So I guess me taking music seriously like, came a bit later, I would say like 10 years ago. And then so you talk about these various influences Mm -hmm. of people
2: that and DJs and of course the rap group Mafia K1 Fry that came from southern Paris. So you also have very distinct sounds that influence you like from your Caribbean Ivorian roots as well. So like the dance genre, Legobi. And then of course also like underground resistance as well. How do you meld all these influences that you had in the past and bring them into your work now, your productions, your mixes? Like how do you bring them and meld them and fuse them together so they Sound coherent in a narrative structure?
1: I think I'm trying to not like piece stuff together in a way that doesn't sound real. I love anything that is hybrid because I'm a hybrid myself, and I feel like the whole world tends to be more hybrid than just pure. Everything is a mix of genre. Even if you listen to Jungle, like, somehow it's also a mix. So I'm trying to not think about it as much as I used to. Like, when I started, like, making music, I was really like, oh, I should put these drums with, like, uh, this sample. Like, I wanted to really make a point and for people to really, like, guess my influences, like, almost, like, seeing it, like, you know. But I do that, like, way less now because... It's also about creating your own language, and creating your own language sometimes means like taking a step back from like your influences, which means like you incorporate the influences, but you still find the strength inside yourself to create something that is authentically you. And I think like this is what I'm trying
2: to do. Hmm. How do you get closer to this authenticity? It seems like you're talking about more operating before you're very like calculated about it. How have you gained the confidence over time to really trust that own authentic voice within yourself and that intuition?
1: I used to be like really, really, really like on some heavy bedroom producer workflow. But I felt like I started collaborating with people more. And when you collaborate with people more because they come with their own history, their own influences, then you will have to, like, know who you are. Because, like, if you don't know who you are and you collaborate with someone, chances are, like, it's not going to be a collaboration. You're just going to be, like, you know, completely, like, drowned into the other person's perspective. So I feel like collaborating with other people kind of, like, allowed me to reflect upon myself because at some point I was not making music at all. I was losing my sense of self because there's so much noise everywhere like we have our phones all the time, like it's just it's just a lot of like noise and not the good kind. So for like a little bit I was not really producing and I got back to producing this year because I started collaborating with people And it made me look within myself and be like, okay, this person is like this. Like, who are you then? You know? I think a good example of that is like, I recently did like a performance, like a live show, a jam session, but that was, you know, filmed and we invited people over. It was during, like, it was at Serpentine Pavilion. In London, I was with uh, Oxy, who's a musician that collaborated with Yves um, Tumor. He has releases on Exquisite Releases, and uh, I think Onto Records as well, which is an Italian label. And also, like, my friend Nandita, she's a guitarist, so I told her to come over. And my friend Kofko as well, like, who's, like, anyone that he's, like, into IDM um, and, like, Congolese, like, African influences knows because she's one of the best DJs ever, but she also happens to be a really, really great piano player. So I was like, I want to bring my friends over and just, like, jam and create music together without having, like, a real plan. The only plan was, like, hey, I think, like, everything is going too fast right now, like, if we could find a way for us to just collaborate on music and just pace stuff down, it would be perfect. And that's what we did. And I think the people enjoyed it a lot. Like for me, it was really like a breath of fresh air because like I said, collaboration is emulation. And that's what really also is a huge chunk of my work as well. So I also wanted to talk about another influence of yours.
2: So I know that you are really interested in DJ Screw as well. I wanted to ask you about what it was like, I think it was, was it this year, going to Texas for the first time and visiting Screwed Up Records. What was it like being in the Southern United States? Because of course you're influenced by French rap, you're influenced by a lot of Southern rap as well. And then you bring that within electronic music, which I think is very unique. I think a lot of people often think that rap isn't really part of this field, but it's now it's growing, it's extending, and you're kind of an ambassador yeah. for that. Let's talk about it.
1: To reply about like uh, people not thinking that rap is part of the field, it's so weird to me because it's like we're using the same tool. When the 808 was invented, like nobody told anybody like the 808 is to produce this type of music. Like when you listen to like mantronics or like even early Africa Bambada and stuff, it's like, they're assembling which is like the foundation of like rap. So it's like, I feel like people that think that don't know rap or don't know electronic music. If you have like a solid music culture, you should understand that the genres have to do with technologies. The fact that like both of these genres kind of like happen at the same time you know like have to do with the fact that they were using the same tools you listen to like arthur russell or like you realize that like it's the same tools like it's the same you were talking about southern rap like i love manny fresh manny fresh is like a huge like producer he produced like most of like cash money records like early records he produced like a lot of like tracks for like early Lil Wayne and he's kind of like one of the architects of like Southern Rap and he's he used a 303 Mm -hmm. he was one of the first person with the Chicago producers to use a 303 within like a rap production so I felt like for me I never separated the two I felt like it's not really it's I'm not criticizing you're allowed to not like rap. Like, I think it's okay that we're haters and we don't like shit sometimes. Like, it's important even because it's critical thinking. I also think that it's important to know the genealogy of the machine, like, that we use and stuff. Like, even the fact that, like, now we have, like, different, like, DAW, like, Ableton or, like, FL Studios or whatever, it's like we use the same stuff. Like, a lot of ambient producers are on FL Studio. And a lot of, like, most rap is made on FL Studio, so what makes you think that it's that different? It's like, sometimes I feel like the conversation gets a bit easy because people don't really talk about the tools that they used. If you use the same tool, chances are there's, like, a lot in common. Yes, I went to Texas this year for the first time. Whew, it's a particular place. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it. Like at first I was scared because it's Republican. I don't know. You know, I don't like guns like that. So I was like, I don't know. I need to like chill or whatever. Like I was scared. But like has been one of the most relaxing trip ever. I went to DJ's crew shop like Screwed Up Tape Shop, which is, I think it's in the south of Houston. And it's like kind of like a pilgrimage place for like a lot of DJs, because DJ Screw like invented this technique, like chopped and screwed, you know. And for me, it was really emotional. When I walked there, I cried. And the the cashier was like so, so sweet. His name is Big A. He was also part of uh, the Screwed Up uh, clique. And I was, like, so ashamed that I was crying because, like, it's, like, why the fuck am I crying? I'm just shopping for, like, records and I'm, like, yeah, I was feeling awkward. And then I was trying to hide my face, but, like, he was, like, hey, like, it's okay and stuff. And I realized that, like, I was really crying because Screw was taking his time. And, like, all of the stories that he gave me about Screw was, like, stories about him, like, Just doing stuff the way you wanted to do them. Obviously, like, you do take your time when you sip a lot of codeine. Like, it's also about who you are as a person, because I feel like me, I could never do codeine, you know. It's just not who I am as a person. But I feel like I really, really enjoyed being here because it allowed me to center myself and to reconciliate myself with taking my time. Cause as DJs, like we're always like moving around, like, oh, what's the next show? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, cool, I'm blessed and I'm very happy. But sometimes you need a little bit of like time to just gather your thoughts and just have time for yourself. And the second thing that made me emotional about going there is that. You know, in Black American cultures, when like a rapper dies, they do like murals and they print their faces on T-shirts and like they're like rest in peace. And then they pour they pour the drink on the <laughs> on the floor, oh, wow. like it's for my dead homies. Yeah. And you know, they have that for rap culture, but they don't have that for DJ culture. Which for me, DJ Screw is at the intersection of both. So for me, going in a place where we're celebrating a DJ, just like he was a like he was like a superstar, but in a way that like is really like authentic and very protective of who he was as a person and his heritage. It's really beautiful. It's cause it means that what we do counts. I don't know how to explain it, but like when I went there, I was like, okay, like it's crazy, but like DJs matter <laughs> I was like DJ lives matter oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know it was very spiritual it was very spiritual I liked it a lot you could sense that like he was a healing figure for his community Beyonce also appeared the first apparition of Beyonce on the track is also on a DJ's crew record So yeah, it's a very important city. I obviously went to the strip club to have the full experience, you know. It was really nice. And I just wanna say something about the South and club music. There's a new genre that's gonna be popping in a few months. Mm -hmm. I'm always on some new shit, y'all know me. Mm -hmm. But like, it's called Southern Club. Cause when I was there, I played at Baos. And, like, I play a lot of southern music in my set, especially if I'm in America. Like, because when I'm in Europe, I know that, like, a lot of the time they're not going to understand the references. That's no shade, but, like, sometimes they just don't get it. And that's fine. But when I go to America, it's, like, all of my B-sides that I don't really play as much in France or whatever, like, I will play them there. Mm -hmm. So I played big timers, like, big balling, which is a very, like... New Orleans song, and when I did that, like the club went crazy. Everybody was screaming and stuff. And then after the club, like I stayed with the opening DJs that opened for me. Uh, Hyper Femme and Amari King were the DJs openers, and they're both originally from Houston. And they were explaining to me that like they're like creating this new genre called Southern club, where like they're sampling a lot of like southern classic like from new orleans from texas like ugk etc and turning them into club songs and like they were telling me like if you go back to europe tell them the south matter i believe that yeah i was born
2: in the south so i i believe that the south matters where were you born i was born lafayette louisiana
1: really yeah
2: yeah i'm
1: going to louisiana in like in like a month for the ah, first time. Okay, yeah. amazing.
2: I think with um Southern Club is that like leon's I know that is based in
1: Atlanta. I feel like, well. like leon's is also Southern Club, even though like I feel like they're borrowing also from RB a lot. Yeah. But I do feel like they were telling me that because they feel like they're being overlooked. Like a lot of people play their edits, but they don't get booked in Europe. But everybody wants to kind of play like them like they want to play like kia my neck my back but you don't leave the lifestyle they leave the lifestyle that's what they were telling me you know so what are
2: some producers that we could shout out to look into
1: um big ace hyper Amari King, the label pussy rap and like all of these people from texas I guess also Morph, ATL, all of these people that like have been like working for years and don't really get their credits, like I would like to give them their credit for sure. Yeah,
2: for sure. Let's Mm -hmm. give them their flowers. So the Mm -hmm. second part, we're going to deviate a little bit from music references and we're going to go into what I'm really interested in, but you sit on the intersection of fashion, music and art, and you do it really well within your career. Mm -hmm. So how did you manage to establish yourself across these different fields? And then I know that you're saying, we were talking a little bit earlier about how it's really difficult to juggle these things because when you're fully a DJ, you exist in the night, but all these other careers that you have going on as well in art and fashion, it's a completely different timetable. How did you establish yourself? What can other people learn from your experience?
1: At first, it was really, I mean, it still is, but like it was really organic. I didn't think anything through when I started like, diving more so into my artistic practice. When I was in high school, like in France, we have like, you have to graduate from high school, but when you take your test, you can have like majors. So my majors were like art and like also like theater and stuff, so it was always there, you know. I also studied philosophy, theater, like art as well, but not in art school, I was in humanities. So it was always, like, in the cut, it was always something that was really, like, influencing me, influencing my music as well. But the shift really happened in 2018 because, like, they were in my city in Paris. They were doing, like, sort of like a series of talks and, like, performances that was called Afro-Cyber Feminism. You can not get more niche than that but like i was like why am i not invited cuz i was like <laughs> looking i'm such a hater we're in paris it's not like we're in new york you know like it's like there's not that many people like rocking with the team like that like you know so on my hater shit as usual i bump into the organizer of the talk of the whole event the event was lasting for 2 months it was like a 2 2 month program I was like, hey, like, I would really like to help with the program. Like, I can take notes. I can do anything. Like, I can film. I wanted to film the talks or anything. Like, if you need an editor, I can do anything. And basically, like, she was like, okay, like, thank you for your interest. And like, she was really receptive. I gave her my email and stuff. And then she came back to me and was like, I don't want you to take notes. Like, She didn't even know who I was. She was like, I don't want you to take notes. I have already someone to film. But since you want to be part of the program so bad, kind of like as a challenge or whatever, I was like, I'll give you a month to do a video, like a 20-minute video for another festival that I'm doing in Belgium, like a contemporary art festival. And I was like, oh, word. But then when I turned off my computer, I was like shaking. I was like... So scared, because I expected just to, like, come and maybe, like, do a little DJ set or, like, have a workshop about producing, but, like, just stay in my comfort zone. But this woman, her name is Uli Mata. She's, like, she's from Senegalese descent, but she's, she's also French. She made me step out of my comfort zone because I asked for something, right? Then she made me, like, you know, own the fact that I asked for something, so I made this video called Collective Amnesia that was kind of, like, inspired by Fibonacci Made Me Hardcore by Mark Lecky, And, like, it worked really well. Like, people loved it. Like, she invited me at the end of the festival to, like, do a screening and, like, perform, like, her original soundtrack that I composed over the movie and stuff. And it kind of, like, it kind of resonated with a lot of people. And that's when it started. But like I said, at first, nothing was planned. I just went and talked to this woman, and she was like, if you want to be an artist, just be an artist, bro. Like, you don't need me. Like, you don't need to. (laughs) Like, what do you want me to do? Like, just go and do you. And I was like, "Okay." You know, sometimes you think stuff is supposed to be so complicated, but it's really not. And so I sent her like a lot of the stuff that I did like years ago, years before we met, like fresh off high school and stuff. And she was like, just keep going. Like, just keep going. You actually don't need me. I'm a curator. Like if you need mentorship or whatever, like just tell me, but like just keep doing you. And that's when I started doing art. And then what would you say, what was the
2: first steps within your steps into the fashion world? as well was there something like that where you reached out to someone or they did they reach out to you is it because no. of your dj sets let's no. talk, talk about that briefly
1: no it's a really weird story the one thing is that i'm french so whether i like it or not people are always going to like aggressively talk about fashion and stuff like you cannot like really avoid it like especially if you're like a woman and it's like really like in your daily life as a French person, but I felt maybe also as an Italian person. I felt like French and Italians are kind of the same sometimes. It's just me, I didn't care that much about fashion, but the city and the economy, economy of like the country has a lot to do with fashion. Because like our contemporary art scene or like our club scene is less big than let's say London. So when we do fashion week for instance that's when the designers are like oh we're going to book everybody and stuff whether in London the fashion brands are like smaller so their fashion parties is not as big as like let's say like a Bottega party or like a Prada party or like a Dior party let's say you know but I got in this world completely randomly Because, like, in 2014, I did a video for, like, a London-based director. Her name is Cecily McKay. She directed, like, a few episodes for this show called Insecure. Yeah. Yes, love that show. On HBO. Before being a director for this huge show, she used to be, like, just, like, a regular girl, like, you know, like, 22 years old and stuff. And she posted a message on Twitter that she wanted to meet, like, French black people. I was like, okay, like, to just film them, and I sent her an email, I was like, I'm free, like, do you want to meet? I was like 21 or 22, and we met, and she basically, like, allowed me to pick, like, three subjects matter, which the subject matter was, like, a movie, a French movie, uh, Afrofuturism, and, like, Detroit techno or whatever, and, like maybe, like, friendship, like, you know, some really general topic. And she filmed me for, like, 15 minutes. The video kind of, like, blew up on YouTube out of nowhere. Like, an art director from Kenzo saw the video. Yeah, really weird. And, like, he was like, I want to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, okay. And then I met him, and I was like, I'm just doing music and going to college. Like, I don't you know I don't know anything whatever I was just like you know like a kid basically this person like kept like you know like relentlessly like being like yo what's your projects like yeah we're really interested with the youth or whatever like and I was like okay and then like he offered me to play one of the cancel party, and I never played for anything that big, so I was stressed, I wanted people to dance and stuff. So I put my whole sweat and tears into the the party, and it really like blew up, and then people were really happy and stuff. And I started like making also music for their shows. I was super young or whatever, and that's when it like I started working with like several people from the fashion industry. I felt like Autolinger, for instance, which is a Swiss brand, was completely random as well. Like, it's just they were throwing a rave and were looking for DJs in Paris and it was their first year being, the, being a brand. And they asked me and, and Kissy as well to play. And it was just the first year. We were not paid. I guess like it's a lot of random stories like I never went to fashion school, art school, blah blah blah. I just like to talk with people and I like music a lot so that was really just that yeah basically
2: you have such incredible stories i feel like there's been so many anecdotes and so many relatable and like very hilarious anecdotes to get into all these different fields what is the process for you to develop a music production a visual work or a performance work or something in terms of like soundtracking a fashion show is there a different approach for everything is there like research that you also said you studied philosophy as well is there like some kind of reading that you go towards how do you develop these three fields let's start with visual work because we talked about it most recently
1: I feel like visual work is just more like visceral it has more to do with like where I am in my life right now like how am I actually feeling in my body and stuff and also like for sure definitely like readings also like kind of nourish my my visual art practice a lot mm-hmm. for, let's say, like a fashion soundtrack. It depends on, like, the designer. There are some designers that, like, are not concerned with, like, the music whatsoever. And most of the time, it's not the designers that I work with, you know. Mm-hmm. But then you have designers like the brand Telfar. Mm-hmm. Like, they're very much into music. They're very, very much into philosophy so when they approach me they already like sort of like have a very vivid idea not only of their show but also of the philosophy that they represent or whatever like when i started working with them in 2019 the show was called the world isn't everything and it was really about like migration we came up with this idea of doing like a song where We repeat all the TSA questions. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, but, like, when you go to America, sometimes they give you, like, a form, and they ask you if you've been, like, in a terrorist organization, if you uh, have, like, an explosive or whatever. So me and Babak, the art director for the brand, we were like, we're going to make a song, but, like, not a percussive song, just, like, an ambient song. And, like, I'm just going to, like... I'm just going to read, like, that over and over. Like, all the questions over and over. And, like, it's just really, like, meetings and also finding people that are as weird as you. Like, I feel like when I'm in the fashion industry, if I don't feel like the person is weird enough, the money is not good, I'm, like, like, I don't want to do stuff, like, only for money and recognition. I want to have fun. Like, if I can sense that, like, you're someone that, like, fashion is cool but like you're a goofy person you're like you love music you love art and stuff like that's when I managed to really create with the person you know so the show was really about like putting in perspective the fact that like we all have different access to like mobility you know we all say oh i'm black i'm i'm white or whatever we all divide ourselves like in different categories but there's also one thing that we don't say is that i have a french passport me and like a migrant that just arrived from Senegal are not the same. Yeah. We might look the same, but we're not the same. Because me, when I go through customs, I take the plane, I do all of this, it's with ease. You know, like is really like, unless it's the police or whatever, like nobody's really trying to like say anything. But like, so the show was really about like stressing the fact that like we don't share the same mobility, that mobility is also like a very, very weird construct. Like by reading this form over and over, it was really about like trying to highlight the absurdity of it as well. Because as human, why would you say to another human where he can go and when he can go? Mm. Unless it's your house, you know? Mm. So Mm. it was really about that. And I felt like the process is always different, pretty much.
2: I love how conceptually strong that, idea is do you also bring that similar kind of research or or a concept into your music production or is it yeah because you were also talking about like jamming with people making it a little bit more organic but it seems like there is this level of intentionality that you put into everything and curiosity as you said
1: I think when I released my first EP it was not as intentional because I was going through a grieving experience, like a grieving process. So it was more so about like, just releasing whatever I had in my body and like releasing like sadness and like a really simple experience of like a musician in front of their synthesizer and just like going through your emotions, you know. But like, I do feel like this recent years, it has become more intentional because a lot of like, the artists that I like are very intentional. Like we were talking about like Mark Leckie, who is a visual artist, but also a musician. I don't know, like even when I listen to a really mainstream rapper like Buster Rhymes, people don't know, but like all of his first album have to do with like the end of the world or like the beginning of the world, like one album is called Genesis. The last album of the trilogy is called Extension Level Events, which is my favorite one. Super dystopian and weird and stuff. All of the stuff that I really vibe with, whether it's rap or electronic music, because I feel like, for instance, let's say... Underground Resistance or like even Detroit Techno was super intentional, like they invented a whole mythology around their work. And that's really what I aim, I mean, not on this scale because they're geniuses, but like, I aim for that. Like I want stuff to not just be like, oh, it's just music and I'm just vibing and doing a TikTok. I want music to like mean something beyond And have, like, sort of like a narrative aspect to it and almost a mythological aspect to it as well, you know?
2: We featured you for a, I guess, like music soundtracking within fashion article on Resident Advisor. And You were talking about emphasizing the cinematic qualities, emphasizing the narrative qualities. What makes something to you a narrative piece of music or, or what adds cinematic elements to a piece of music? If you could uh, explain it a little bit more.
1: I feel like sometimes creating space in your music allows for, like, a cinematic vibe in your music. When you have, like, a pretty, beautiful, like, intro, like, the intro can be, like, a little longer, like, automatically, it's a little more cinematic because you're setting the the scenery up, you know? Like, you're painting a picture before, like, getting into the drums and getting into the rhythm. Like, you're giving the opportunity to the person to close their eyes and, like realize what's at play, you know, I feel like this is important for me, like great intros is something that is definitely important. It doesn't need to be like a one minute long or like, it's just give a little something, something, a little munch, you know, like I feel like this gives like a lot of like narrative structure to it. I feel like the outro, I feel like creating a bridge. One thing that I regret about pop music is like there is no bridges anymore. Especially the Neptunes, they used to have like these insane bridges. Like when you listen to Front end, they have like this huge bridge in the middle of like the thing. This is cinematic. We don't know how to do that. Or like a key change is cinematic also. Anything that can add a little bit of flavor and like some space inside of your music, in my opinion, is cinematic. Just you don't need to put like a sad violin for it to be like cinematic or like, you know, some changes, some
2: narrative tension. yeah. Yeah. I guess a lot of things are very immediate now, very like short term gratification. And you're saying that, you know, music from the Neptunes and what have you, there's definitely elements that carry someone through. Beginning, middle, and end. You've been on somewhat of a mainstream trajectory. So you produce edits and remixes for Frank Ocean and also resident of Homer Radio. But yeah, this past Coachella set, it was rather infamous. And uh, you were the DJ at the very center of the media storm. Uh, You were using Virgil Abloh's DJs, right? The late Virgil Abloh. Yeah, that's just so incredible. Frank Ocean said that it was a nod to how important artists like you are to his practice and how they deserve their own spotlight within uh, music's biggest stages. So tell me about the experience. I think that that's wild. There was such a media storm about his Coachella performance. What was it like to be kind of in the eye of the storm around that? How did they get in touch with you? And what came of it?
1: For contractual reason, like, I cannot go into, like, the really in-depth, like, stuff. But I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that, like, it was a really life-changing experience to be, like, in the studio for, like, a month with this person it was crazy. I didn't expect that at all. I was just minding my little IDM um, weirdo, booty base whatever, business. I was just doing my stuff. I was never the type of producers that would be like, one day I'm a producer for I was never like that. I wish I was, like, but like I was never like that. I would, in my eyes, I was like, I'm just gonna do me and whatever. So when he contacted me, I was like, I felt like it was a mistake. You know, like, cause I don't live in America, I don't live in London. I live in France, which is it's also a well-known country, but it's not that particularly like well known for its contemporary like electronic scene. It was like maybe 10 years ago, but it's no longer the case now. So I was kind of like, first of all, where did you find me? And like, cause I was like, that's pretty random. And but also I learned, I learned how to get to know him. And then I was like, oh, it makes sense, because he loves word shit, like, word music and stuff. Like, he's really into, he's really a digger, basically. So that's not surprising that, like, he knows a lot of, like, he has a really, like, incredible, like, music history. And he works alongside incredible people as well. And I think, like, in France, it's either your mainstream, so you don't care about like researching like, cultural aspects and artifacts, or you're underground, so that's the only thing that you talk about and do, and you don't ever want to translate to a bigger audience. So I felt like, for me, meeting him was kind of like, oh, you can actually be both. And don't get me wrong, I know that you're be, you can be both, because like, we saw Kanye doing Jesus with ARCA, Back when Arca wasn't as big, like we saw like we saw a lot of like this type of collaboration happening before. Like, but I guess for me the experience was so cool because it let me do whatever I wanted to do, first of all. His feedback was always great. And I feel like, to be honest, it wasn't a bad show. A lot of people were like like filming shady ass TikToks and stuff, like <laughs> I just feel like it was people had, like, some kind of expectations about, like, oh, like, I want to listen to the same song that I listened like, seven years ago when I was in high school. I want to listen to Pink and White the same way. And it's like, okay, Miss Mamas, but, like, life has changed. Baby, we're on the break of World War III. Like, it's like, it has changed tremendously. So what he wanted to do is to revisit his classic in a way that feels more mature, Way more disruptive. And I agree that Coachella is a very controversial place because that might not be the place where it's going to be well received because people are very cookie cutter. And I might not play there just because I said that. every. It's very, like, literally mainstream. So, like, whenever you, like, did, like, some kind of, like, cold wave take of, like, the song that he recorded six years ago, people are, like some people were vibing and some people were like, you know, asking themselves questions. But I think that's what he also wanted. Also, I want to rectify that a lot of people were actually happy. I received a lot of like beautiful messages from like his fans and people that discovered me because a lot of like mainstream artists, they put the DJ at the beginning of the show. That's not what he did. He put me in the middle of the show. So that's kind of crazy. There was also like a very like goofy, funny moment because like the security guard was dancing and then the spotlights was put on the security guard. So it was like, it was just so funny to me. It was a real show, actually. It was not the perfect Beyonce like automatic show, but it was definitely like a show with a lot of like adventures within the show itself. I also feel grateful for the Omer Radio thing, which is also, has also been curated by Frank on Apple Music. It's the last show now. It's probably going to be renewed, I don't know, but, like, I've been doing it for a year, and honestly, like, it has exposed me to a lot of people that, like, wouldn't know me and wouldn't even know the music because it's, like, whenever my friend that, like, plays, like, super niche stuff, like power electronics or whatever, like... Mm-hmm. Send me some stuff, I try to squeeze it in so people that like only want to hear about Frank or whatever, like they will tune in and hear this weird stuff. And maybe a kid in Hawaii or whatever is gonna be like go on Bandcamp and buy the song, you know. So for me, it was like common ground between like underground stuff from my friends and I. And also mainstream stuff that I like or even like underground rappers and just like make a mix of all of that. So like when you give like a medicine to a kid, you cannot give the medicine right away. You have to put it in some yogurt or like some Nutella. With Omer Radio, that's what I tried to do. I tried to like have like the stuff that I would play here at Club to Club for a very demanding like audience. But also have like all of my influences and all of the stuff that like the youngest want to listen to and merge them together you know so. yeah you're essentially building bridges and this is how people get into more underground music exactly you're that builds. because if you just builder. play a noise set they're just going to turn it off like one minute in so it had no interest for me to do such thing i just wanted to like lured people in and then 13 minutes in, then noise bridge, you know? They stick around. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay, so this is a,
2: we're almost in time, but I just, I had one last question, Mm -hmm. which was, you once said, my main concerns are well-being, agency, and autonomy. Obviously, you're in the middle of so many different projects, but how do you keep your well-being, agency, and autonomy in check as an artist?
1: (laughs) Self-care. Sorry. (laughs) Whoa, I said that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's an everyday struggle, I feel. There's a lot of perks to being an artist. Obviously, like, I do what I want to do, which is a blessing, especially in, like, what we're going through. It's like every day I wake up and I'm, like, super happy to do what I do. You also have to learn how to say no a lot. Everything sounds appealing, especially when it has to do with music, your passion and stuff. Like, you're like, Yeah! Like, you're always like, yo, yeah, yeah, like, you know. And for me, I did that for like a year. I was like, everybody was like, do you want to do that? Yeah. Hey, come jump to my house. Yeah. But then at the end of the day, you don't have energy for yourself. Like, you don't have energy maybe for a partnership. You have to manage time to be able also to stay sharp. Taking a step back and also like saying no a lot has really like changed things for me like this past few months.
2: Just say no more. All right, so that concludes our RA live exchange with Crystal Mess. I hope y'all enjoyed yourselves. Crystal, you're amazing. <laughs> Big round of applause. Thank you thank thank so you much. much.
0: <laughs> thanks for listening to this RA exchange with Crystal Mess. Many thanks to the team at C2C Festival for facilitating and to Whitney Way for moderating this talk. The track playing in the outro of this episode is Is a Revenge by Crystal Mess, which came out on the label NADZAT in 2021. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on RA.co or on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. Until next time, take care.